millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Elle Nash on her debut novel, Animals Eat Each Other. Elle Nash is the founding editor of Witchcraft magazine and a fiction editor at Hobart Pulp. Her work has been featured in Volume 1 Brooklyn, The Fanzine, Cosmopolitan, Elle, The Offing, Enclave and other places. And her debut novel, Animals Eat Each Other, we're going to be talking about today. Elle, welcome to Little Atoms. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Um, So how would you describe Animals Eat Each Other, first of all? I have heard it described as a visceral, raw, and gritty book. The book explores the relationship between three people and sort of the dynamic between all three of them, how it changes, and how manipulation works in their relationships with each other. And where did where did the sort of genesis of this book come from then? It started as a short story in an online workshop I took in probably, I think 2012 or 2013 Um, and I just kind of I kept expanding it I was working with my mentor Tom Spanbarrow at the time and um, as we kept unpacking it like as I was working with him I realized that it just needed to be a novel I was really interested in the ways that um, you know female friendships are formed especially between non like hetero identifying women and how close and how quickly um, but also how becoming really vulnerable can cause the relationship to turn really quickly too, like how friends and lovers hurt each other. So that was really sort of the genesis of that novel. I really liked exploring that and exploring how different... So the main character, she is a part of this like threesome relationship or like a thruple, like these two people are already dating and she enters it. And I really liked exploring the difference between how the man in the relationship has a power dynamic with her and how she has a different power dynamic with the woman in the relationship and kind of like how those interrelated. Tell us something more about how it developed from that short story then, because you said you, you filled it out, but it was a process of, you know, filling the story out. But, you know, one of the things that's noticeable about the book is its style is is very pared down. It's written in short chapters. We'll talk about something more about the chapters in a moment, but the style of it is is very terse and i wonder if that was already there or did that sort of develop through the through the expansion Mm, um it's a good question 
I think maybe it was a little bit of both. You know, this is my first novel, and I was, you know, really learning a lot about myself and my voice, you know, that I was trying to develop as I was writing it. And one thing that I really love to do in my fiction is focus on these little intricate or intimate details, like the physical exchanges that people have. Um, I really love fiction that feels vivid to me when I read, so I try to focus on that when I write and like one of my goals as a writer is to basically cause like I have an emotion or feeling or a flittering of something in my head that I feel it's like an atmosphere you know and I I want to be able to transfer that feeling onto the page so that someone else feels that and so that's I think why I worked in these like pared down chapters and how you'd say it's kind of like terse and you know uh, I wanted to sort of like replicate like that type of mood I guess does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think and that's, that is exactly what it does. And I wanted to say something about the, the chapter titles. The Well, I'll let you explain because the chapter titles are, are interesting as well. Yeah. Um, so when I had originally thought about writing this book, I wanted to explore um, these like, like the tenets of Satanism. And I was like, at first, I was like, okay, maybe I'll try to have every chapter title be like a tenet of Satanism or something like that. But it didn't end up working out with the structure. So like, as I was writing it, I just, I don't know, I was just thinking like, this is the chapter title, like, this is what the chapter is about, because I didn't want to just do like one, two, three, or four, you know? I didn't really think much of it when I wrote it, but I've heard so much feedback that people really love the chapter titles too, so it's really kind of good to hear that. Yeah, it's almost as if the, the chapter titles work in, in a sort of, you know, micro-fiction way as well. They're all like, some of them are, are little tiny stories in themselves almost. Yeah, yeah, like a couple of the ones that I like is like, uh, the thing about boundary issues is that you end up fucking your friends or maybe everyone you know. Or if you don't leave your hometown after high school, you'll get bad tattoos and do lots of drugs. And they're like kind of like funny little quips that I just had thought of that I thought would work as like a chapter title. Can we talk about the the setting both in time and place as well? So it's set in, in Colorado Springs, first of all. Why there? Well, so Colorado Springs is a place that I grew up, so I was really familiar with it as a place. And... It's kind of interesting because one thing that annoyed me about living there was that when everyone would visit, like tourists, they were like, oh, like Colorado Springs is so beautiful. There's so much nature. There's a lot of like poetry from people who are local to the area that talk about how beautiful the Rocky Mountains are. And like, frankly, when you live there, you kind of see that it's not. There's a lot of uh, there's a big disparity between like the haves and have nots. And it's really clear in like the infrastructure in the uh, more poor parts of town. Um, there's also five military bases that surround the town. So it's very, there's a lot of transient people, not transient as in homeless, but transient as people like who come in and out of the city. Like there's people who just, they only visit for a few years and then leave. So when you're growing up there, it can feel a little bit like you're stuck and everyone else is going. And so I wanted to kind of capture that feeling in this book of a person who felt stuck and like didn't know kind of where to go outside of that i want to talk about the time setting as well because it's set in the early 2000s um now we're going to talk about a narrator in a moment and one of the sort of structural elements of the book is that it's she's obviously narrating the book from 
a point in the future and looking back at something that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk about why that particular time period. Um, well, I think just as a millennial, I start to look fondly back on the early 2000s as this really special moment in like music and culture, just, you know, like for me specifically. So maybe it's kind of like selfish. And I kind of love the idea of exploring it culturally, like, sort of memorializing that early 2000s moment because I think for a long time there's a lot of hype around like the 90s like oh 90s toys and 90s music you know like Kurt Cobain and uh, 90s advertisements and like 90s clothing is so it's like fashionable again but there's not a lot of attention paid yet to the early 2000s which is like huge jinkos jeans new metal which everyone kind of seems they like love to hate um there's a lot of or like the mall goth culture there's a lot of uh distaste towards it like it's not quite cool yet so i i kind of just wanted to like memorialize those moments <laughs> um of like my own coming of age like those those uh like the icons of style and like uh feelings of like growing up in that time period so the narrator of the novel she's to begin with unnamed or i mean remains unnamed in terms of mm-hmm. her, her real name yeah um, and she has given a name by one of the characters later mm. on but let's talk about the, the decision i mean i guess thematically the naming of her by this particular character is relevant to the theme of the book but let's talk about the idea of her being unnamed to begin with first of all yeah so i really wanted the character to function as a mirror or like a reflecting pool and i wanted to do that not just in the book so the other characters get to name her and have this ownership over her. They get to project kind of like their own desires onto her, which is why she's nameless. So she's like taking on metaphorically this new identity that they've given her. But at the same time, like outside of that, like the meta is that I really try to write the characters as unjudgmentally as possible because I wanted Lilith herself to be able to reflect back what people read into it like Lilith herself or the unnamed character becomes this reflection for like who who is reading her and I wanted people to be able to relate to her as much as they could so I felt like leaving her nameless was a really good way to do that let's talk about who Lilith historical Lilith is she was the first wife of Adam um, which isn't present in like the Christian mythos but in Jewish mythology she was considered the first wife um, she was made from the same clay as him and, and she didn't come from his rib so there's this idea that she's made on like equal footing as him and then the story goes and it's been interpreted in many different ways but the story goes that she refused to submit to Adam so she was cast out of the garden herself And then there's lore about her that she's basically, like, a night demon. She represents, like, all the bad things about women, like, seducing men or, like, taking away firstborn children. But in other lore, she's also represented as, like, this figure of rebellion, of someone who wouldn't, you know, submit to authority and that sort of thing, too. And let's talk about who... I mean, in two ways, because normally I would say let's talk about who our narrator is, who our character is. We could do this in in two ways: who she is before and after she becomes Lilith, I guess. Yeah. So before Lilith, 
I would say that, so she's a young 19-year-old girl who is just working part-time right after high school. She doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. Um, her father has been dead for some time, and her mother is a single working mom who struggles to sort of keep things together after the death of her dad. Her mom, like, uses pain medication to sort of deal with her problems, and as a result, and the unnamed narrator does too. So that's who she is before she meets this couple. And she's alienated, and she wants to feel like she's a part of community, of, like, a family. So I think it's like when she meets this couple, she kind of gets thrust into that because they also have a child. So she gets to experience this feeling of having a nuclear family with them. As a result, she sort of becomes like what they want like she's like okay here's a place here's a path I can take and so she just kind of follows that path that they delineate for her Matt and Francis or Frankie tell us more about who they are so um Matt and Frankie are young parents they're about the same age as Lilith um and they have a child who is I think around um one year of age I would say in the book um I think he like grows throughout the book and they're basically just people who they're struggling to get by as young parents sort of living on their own Matt is also a tattoo artist or like a budding tattoo artist and Frances is just a stay-at-home mom taking care of the baby and they have like their own relationship but there are people who are like they're open and sort of I think looking for an escape from the stresses of their daily lives too. And so our narrator embarks on this sort of fraught three-way relationship with the two of them. What does she, I mean initially what does she want out of it? What does she think she's going to get from this? Um, I would say she's just looking for like a sense of belonging. Um, she appreciates the attention that she gets from them, but she's looking for a place where she feels like she can just like be like belong. Like she almost is willing to be owned, so that way she can be uh, belonging, like belong to someone in that way. Because she feels alienated from like her family and society at large. She's has problems with substance abuse she's constantly trying to escape herself and like so for them it kind of becomes this way to escape and she of course in not too long starts to push against the boundaries right she starts to wonder who has all of the power in the relationship whether it's matt or frankie um because frankie has like a bit of a temper and is sometimes cruel to matt and the unnamed narrator sees this and there's something in her that wants to pull closer to Matt. And then there's a moment in the book where he instead pulls her closer to him. And so she's aware of like the betrayal that takes place, but participates in it anyway. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Elle Nash and we're talking about her debut novel, Animals Eat Each Other. And Elle, I want to talk about the depiction of bisexuality in the novel something which is often not particularly covered in even still in contemporary novels but what's great about your depiction here is it's not even really what the novel is about in terms of a narrator's defining characteristic it's just Mm -hmm. it's just who she is yeah growing up you know i read a lot of books about i guess They were coming-of-age books about LGBT characters in which their sexual identity was, like, the main source of their identity. And I was really tired of seeing that, honestly. Like, I think it has its place. I'm not saying that it's bad. But I really wanted to read about and develop a character who this was part of her, but it wasn't, like, this defining characteristic. She was already okay with herself in this respect. It wasn't something that she needed to explore about herself. She just simply was. And she didn't need to like put a label on it it didn't need to be described as something special you know it just simply is a natural function of her life and i think i just really wanted to express that on a page and also related to that now normally i would say we you know we're not going to talk about what happens in the novel and give too much away but i i I did want to say that what i also really loved is that this is not also a story in which our narrator goes on some sort of character arc and learns a lesson. Basically, it ends up pretty much with her in the same position as she was when she started. Yeah, as I was working through the book, um, I realized that I wanted the book to feel realistic like a real story that someone could have gone through and uh, functionally when people are dealing with substance abuse issues or bad relationship patterns um, especially in this short of a period of time uh, people don't often learn their lessons or maybe they do but it takes a very long time you know you can only help a person who's willing to help themselves that sort of thing and 
I think that, you know, the reality is for the vast majority of people who do suffer from uh, these sorts of problems, it's a, it's a lifelong struggle. It's not something that, you know, at the end of the book, you're changed. It's, it's something where, like, maybe you do. You end up in the same place a year later, not having necessarily learned anything. And um, I wanted that feeling that nothing changes, that feeling of, like, dissatisfaction to kind of come through towards the end. Talk about a couple of the the themes of the book, and and first of all, can you talk about sort of themes of identity and and the self that that you look at in the story? Our narrator is part of her. I've just said she's not going on a journey, but you know, part of what's going on in this relationship is her experimenting with different aspects of identity. I guess taking mm-hmm. on different versions of herself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, when you're a young person and you're trying to figure out your place in the world, you're more free to explore these aspects of yourself and, like, make mistakes doing it without necessarily having these, like, huge consequences. You're not responsible for anyone yet, Um, which is an interesting contrast to the couple who they do have a big responsibility. You know, like, they have this child that they have to look after together. So for them, the stakes of losing each other is much higher than of like Lilith losing them or losing something else in the process. So I kind of wanted to compare and contrast those things. And I don't know, I think it's kind of universal. Like at some level, most humans are on a search for themselves or exploring themselves, you know, um, at some point or other in their lives, you know, it's the, it's kind of almost like kind of like the basis of most religions is this, the analysis of the self and their place in the world or in the cosmos, you know, I was going to expand that and say that also you just described her, you know, being in this position where, you know, Matt and Frankie have adult responsibilities. They have a child to look after and, and Lilith is, on the cusp of adulthood she's you know she's 19 she's embarking on a you know a, a very let's say adult relationship with this couple but at the same time is in a position she, you know she has a job she works but she's also looking towards the rest of her life not sure what direction that's going to take her in as well and and you know not I don't know, what am I trying to say here? You know, there are certain adult responsibilities that perhaps she's not ready to experience yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, when you're 19 and you're, like, kind of on the precipice of the world, there's this expectation that you should be knowing where you're headed um, and start to get serious about your life and have to be, like, a responsible adult. But it's almost an unrealistic expectation for such a young person. Being, like, in my 30s now... You know, if I were to speak to my early 20s or 19-year-old self, I would just say, like, it's really not a big deal. Your 20s are kind of there for you to fuck up a little bit, you know, Um, explore yourself more. Like, you don't have to worry so much about trying to find, like, your adulthood yet. Like, it's okay to work towards things, but you don't have to be too serious about it yet. And then I feel like once you hit your late 20s to, like, your early 30s, that's when, you know, you want to have something more stable like in in place I think you know um it's tough it's tough being 19 and thinking that you have to have the world figured out because you really don't and even then like when you get older and you meet other people the varying ages you kind of realize that like no one else really has the world figured out you know when most people turn 30 they end up doing something else completely different anyway um you can you can reinvent yourself at any stage of the wheel 
you know, it's it doesn't nothing has to be set in stone, you know, quite yet. So yeah. As we've discussed, this this is a novel that has you know, it has a shall we say dysfunctional relationship at its centre, there is substance abuse, manipulation, cruelty, humiliation. These are quite perhaps difficult subjects to, to write about. And I know as well as writing, you know, this novel and short stories, you write non fiction as well and you've written non fiction about eating disorders and things. And I wondered if which register you, you find it easier to write about, shall we say, tough subject matter in, non fiction or fiction? Mm, I would say fiction because I'm really allowed to explore things thematically in a way that like the real world doesn't necessarily allow you to. And it's not that writing about myself is hard, you know, like with nonfiction, I've written essays about having an eating disorder and that sort of thing. It's not that like broaching myself or analyzing myself is difficult. It's more just that fiction feels more flexible as a form. And it's funny because the more and deeper I've gotten into writing fiction, it's almost harder to go back to thinking about writing personal essays. Like I've done a few of them, but like with fiction, you can really just, you can do anything, you know, it's just, it feels a lot more free. Is there a pressure, I think especially now in the sort of social media age, especially particularly on, you know, young women writers, young women journalists, to to put themselves at the centre of the story in that sort of way? Um, You know, I do think there is that pressure. I was recently talking with a friend who had a book come out this year about, she was talking about writing essays like for book promotion. Um, And there is a part of me that feels like I don't feel like I have to be confessional to promote myself. And I shouldn't necessarily like it shouldn't it shouldn't have to be that way. Like, you know, I am I'm practicing like a a historical art form, which is literature. Um, I am or fiction, you know, literary fiction. And I shouldn't have to necessarily like, you know, wallow in (laughs) um the confessional world of like hot take essays and that sort of thing and it's not that I'm against it if you I think if people want to write that way and that's what they feel like writing then they absolutely should some people prefer nonfiction, and I think that's great but yeah it feels a little bit like I guess when I ever whenever I see like male novelists have books come out I never see their you know confessional type this is my life essays I never sort of see that um, happen and maybe it's just because they're not seeking them you know but um no I think they're not being asked <laughs> yeah it seems that there's more of a focus on that and you know to be quite honest like maybe it happens because there's a market demand and if this is how you're going to reach like your audience and that's what they want to see it makes sense that some people do want to serve that but you know it's true like I've kind of gone back and forth like I love the, the opportunity and chance to write essays about things that I feel like writing about but if the pressure go, you know, goes, it's like, I don't want to feel like I have to confess my life or anything like that. And even, I think even in regards to the book, like I've noticed, I've had a lot of questions that ask, they kind of sideways ask, like if the book is about me or about my life and, you know, it's not nonfiction. That's not, you know, if I was going to write about my life, then I would have written a memoir and it's not a memoir, you know, it's literary fiction. So I think you're right that there is this pressure for women to sort of have their like have it be a diary or a confessional thing um and it doesn't have to be that way you know i can just simply say i don't want to write those types of essays and not do it so um to finish this off can i get you to to read us a little bit of the novel sure um i think i will actually read from 
the prologue, which is just the very beginning of the book, and then a few paragraphs into it. So, Matt placed the knife on my face, pressing down against my lips. He wanted me to lick the edge of it, to push my tongue up against the serrated edge so he could watch the way the muscle in my mouth looked against the metal. With his other hand, he held my neck to the floor. The one who tied me to the coffee table was his girlfriend, Frances. Her hand was on my thigh, small and smooth and bird-like, occasionally caressing back and forth across my leg as I lay on my back, pressed into the living room carpet. Frances was naked and sat with her legs under her, tourmaline hair falling to her lower back. We were drunk again, their baby asleep in his crib in the bedroom down the hall. I squirmed my hips to get comfortable, inched my head left to keep my hair from pulling. Matt's fingers, thick and calloused, wrapped tighter around my neck. The pressure in my skull increased in slow heartbeats, the room fading into an inky black vignette. His eyes, the kind of blue you only see in nature documentaries about very cold places, stared into mine. I stared at the bridge of his nose to seem like I was staring into his eyes. At moments, I would catch his gaze and almost see a flash that I was a real living thing, visceral and bleeding. I wanted to be validated the way everyone does. I ended up between a floor and a knife, between a man and the mother of his child. This was before I understood what it was like to be held close, to the ribs close. Close like I was the only one. That summer, I worked at Radio Shack, an adult strip mall, three miles from my mother's place in Lamplighter Mobile Home Park. We moved to Lamplighter when I was eight, after my father died from sudden liver complications, leaving us with a garage-sized inheritance of 1970s knickknacks, old photos, and debt. My mother was a caretaker for the elderly, and although she worked through most holidays, her income alone couldn't pay the mortgage on the Rambler they had bought when they first moved to Colorado Springs. All summer, my mother had been prodding me to find a job. I just graduated high school and had no immediate plans for college, instead investing my time in a growing obsession with snorting Percocet. It was 13 the first time I thumbed one of my mother's pills, a Vicodin, only one, because I feared she might notice it was missing. I remember carrying it back to my bedroom like a fragile tooth, and I placed it under my pillow with the same excitement that used to come from exchanging body parts for quarters. I brushed my teeth and washed my face in the hallway bathroom, and when I came back, the pill was still there. I swallowed it with a glass of water, and it first felt very nauseous. Then a warmth spread from my belly into the rest of my limbs, and I felt comforted in a way I hadn't in a long time. It reminded me of a moment when I'd woken from a nightmare as a child and crawled into bed between both of my parents, cradled by the largeness of their bodies and the smell of their sweat, both sweet and stale, like old cigarettes. So I've been talking to Elle Nash. We've been talking about her debut novel, Animals Eat Each Other, which is out in the UK now from 404 Inc. Elle, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.